Hello and welcome to the 20th anniversary commentary track of There's Nothing Out There. I am Rolf Konevsky, the writer-director of this flick, as you are now seeing on the screen. And I am doing a new commentary track for all the fans out there who want to learn more about nothing. And I'll see what I can tell you. Okay, as you can see, the Invasion of the Body Snatchers poster in front of that video store is from the original classic. Um, a, fan, a film that I'm a big fan of, as well as its 1979 remake. Uh, I don't want to uh, repeat everything that I said on the last commentary track, which was uh, also on this disc and wonderfully recorded by uh, my father, the producer, uh, editor of the film, Victor Konevsky, as well as John Kim, who plays that Men in Black, uh, who was a PA on the film and a lot of other jobs, and Gene Massey, and Mark Culver, who plays Jim, and Craig Peck, who played Mike. They are not here to join me for this new revised commentary track. I'm here by myself, so I will try to make it as entertaining as possible by saying something new. Anyway, um, when the commentary last left off in the other track, uh, my mother, the executive producer of the film, Alice Konevsky, Alice Glenn on the credits, uh, said that uh, here we are 10 years later and we're still doing it, still doing this movie. So now here we are 20 years later, also still doing this movie, um, and seeing what we can say about it. Well, uh, the short film that's on that monitor, uh, for the first time you'll be able to see on the special features, I believe, uh, that shot um, is from a movie I did called Just Listen when I was in college with some friends back in uh, 1988, uh, probably about a year before we started doing this movie. Um, and uh, this video store was a real video store, as I had said. Uh, those were all video boxes that we uh, placed into the store. We, uh, in order to shoot it a little quicker, we put the uh, camera aimed at one space and then just changed out the boxes so we can get as much coverage as possible because we had very little time to, uh, to shoot this whole sequence uh, with Lisa uh, playing Sally. Um, it was, uh, it was a tricky shoot, uh, my first film. I was 20 years old at the time. It was in 1989 when we shot this. Um, actually, the original scene of the film uh, began here. Uh, the woman was uh, driving her car and uh, tape gets stuck in the tape deck and she drives off the road. However, after I saw uh, the movie Lethal Weapon 2 uh, that summer, which had this wonderful... Uh, beginning in a car chase, I thought it'd be really cool to begin the film in an action scene and turn this into a dream, having her wake up in the car. So I added the whole uh, uh, video store sequence to the movie to give it like a double opening, um, which was fun and a great way to uh, homage all the old titles and show one of those rare Mon Pa video stores that don't exist very often anymore. Most of them have been closed down by uh, the Best Buys and the Walmarts uh, taking over. So uh, the opening of the film was, yeah, her supposed to be driving, drives off the road, and then gets attacked by this uh, glowing green alien uh, who just basically falls to Earth and lands in a puddle. Uh, the concept was that uh, why does the alien have to be so smart, the, you know, and this sort of greater intelligence, because usually, you know, these guys just come out of nowhere. So it falls into a puddle. It's just trying to learn how to act in the world and uh, get scared off of little things like shaving cream later in the film. Because like, uh, you know, you hold a little baby to fire and it knows fire is bad. We did that effect with the tentacles springing up by actually uh, uh, 
spring system, so we pulled them back and then let it go, and it leaped up like that. The rest was done by uh, the old puppeteering hands. I had heard comments that um, people were surprised that we showed the creature as much as we did in the movie. Uh, actually, you don't really see the creature until about halfway through the film when it attacks Mike in the basement. The uh, thought behind that was, well, since it's a low-budget movie, if we wait till the end of the movie to show the creature, then everyone's built up their expectations so high that when they see it, they're like, that's the creature, that's it, that's not too good. So I thought we should show it early on so people don't have like, we can't wait to see what the creature looks like and then be disappointed because... It's not going to be alien, you know, H.R. Geiger. Uh, no way. So uh, we uh, we decided to do it that way. Uh, again, I love these opening credits. Uh, they were done by the Effects House in New York and uh, were the only thing shot officially on 35mm. Um, the uh, sort of song that's playing here I thought would be kind of fun to use the lines from the movie that you hear later on in the film. So these are all quotes that come back into the movie as, as we go. There were a lot of films back in this time that were doing end credits that had like little snippets of, of lines of dialogue from the movie and uh, I thought it'd be fun to put in the beginning so people people could kind of uh, listen to it again and and, uh, and hear some of their favorite or non-favorite lines. Um, but uh, yeah, this was a... Uh, this was an endeavor. I had uh, been into films since I was four years old and... Uh, I've been making films on uh, on video. Uh, I talked some about this earlier, but um, really the first official thing I did when I got my video cameras, I did a movie called Undead, which was like a 50-minute short that I did with a friend when I was 15 years old uh, and uh, going to HB Studios, taking screenwriting uh, courses at the, at the same time. And then when I was 16, I did a movie called Strength in Numbers, um, which was really taught me more about the film business than anything else. Uh, this was supposed to be kind of a fun summer project. I wrote the script. It was a comedy action thriller, kind of a Goonies-esque type of story. And we wound up spending two years making the movie. It was uh, finally put together, ran almost two hours long. Um, I learned so much by doing that. The big thing everyone's always is like, you know, how do you how do you learn to get into the film business? And in my case, I said, luckily, my parents were supportive, but I was very much self-taught. You know, I got my video camera and just started experimenting, making shorts, and then moved on to trying to make a feature film on video. Um, worked with over 100 people on that movie and uh, was doing uh, PA work in the summers at the same time. I got into... Uh, that's production assistant onto a few independent films like uh, Pose for Murder, which is also surprisingly on uh, DVD for the first time. Uh, Brian Jones had uh, Brian Thomas Jones had directed that, and I worked for free on that movie for a while. I worked for Trauma on Trauma's War, and um, a movie called Chief Zabu, also known as Rich Boys, uh, also known as a few other titles, and never ever release. Directed by a guy named Zach Norman, who was an actor. He played Danny DeVito's uh, older brother in Romancing the Stone. It starred Alan Garfield. And uh, as far as I know, still to this day has never come out. I also did some PA work on a movie called Laser Man, which uh, I think eventually did come out. But I did not uh, work on the production. I worked on the prep. Um, that picture, which I did not uh, neglected to uh, talk about last time on the, on the blackboard, was uh, drawn by a guy named Dave Shelton who was our still photographer on the film and is actually still out here in L.A. plugging away, trying to get some TV shows going and things like that. He created a character called Snuggy Bear that uh, he's been uh, 
working on. Uh, but yeah, he drew that uh, that monster on the board just uh, trying to keep people entertained while we were uh, trying to make this day, which um, was a lot because, as like I said, this and the whole video store opening was all shot in one day, all of this stuff. So everything you're seeing in the first uh, almost 10, 12 minutes of the movie was uh, one day of the shoot. Uh, and amazingly enough, this film was the longest shooting schedule I've ever had, uh, 24 days. Um, never topped again until uh, this thing I'm currently working on. However, that doesn't really count because it's uh, seven movies at the same time. And uh, I won't talk too much about that. Back to There's Nothing Out There. So um, I did, uh, I worked as a PA. I started doing, uh, I, did a, I did a feature film called Strength in Numbers. I was still in high school at the time. And for my high school senior project, I was going to uh, Hackley High School in uh, Terrytown. I decided to write and direct a uh, feature-length uh, movie and a play called Murder in Winter. And that starred Craig Peck, who plays Mike. Uh, we went to the same high school together. He was great. He played a character named Jason. It was kind of a Agatha Christie, Ten Little Indians with a big sense of humor um, murder mystery. And we had one live performance, which went great, and I made a, uh, a video of the movie as well as the play and sold them and made a profit, which was amazing. And then got in with, with that and all the uh, effort I'd done, got into early admissions at Hampshire College up in Massachusetts to, uh, to go to college. So by the time I graduated high school, I had done two feature-length films on video, had worked on four films as a PA. Um, Trauma's War was just before I started college. Um, and uh, that was me walking by, uh, my little Hitchcock cameo. Talked about that last time. And uh, then I went to Hampshire College and fought with them for about two and a half years, doing some shorts. Uh, one which is the uh, the video in the beginning, just listen, which is now on this disc, and uh, something called Peekaboo. They were actually both uh, scenes from a uh, script I'd written called The Host, which I had planned to make after. There's nothing out there if we could raise the money. And shot it at Hampshire College as my uh, Division Three final project, but that never happened. So after I finished There's Nothing Out There, um, I was able to take a semester off. Um, while I was editing the film, I went back to school and tried to prove that I had learned something from making this film because they were not going to count, even though I was majoring in film, this movie at all towards my uh, credits and, and graduation because it was a horror film. And uh, Hampshire College, as many as well as many other uh, colleges do not really have much respect for the horror genre, Hollywood included, except they make so much money doing it, they can't stop. But um, I did write a, a book called Making Nothing at the Age of 20 uh, while I was finishing up this film and while I was taking courses at Hampshire. We uh, posted the book online, so if you go to there's nothing out there .com, um the entire book with pictures is available. Uh, I wrote it. Really, an attempt to talk to other aspiring filmmakers to let them know my experiences and uh, you know the uh, the pitfalls and and uh, things to uh, to look out for or help out um, with their careers because uh, I thought from the perspective of a twenty year old at the time it might be kind of cool to see other people that are trying to make movies at, at that age. So I wrote that book. I finally got some credit for the uh, for the project, but. Um, I still had to do a final project for Hampshire, and uh, my advisor advised me to probably leave at that point because I had learned as much as I probably would. So I finished the movie and started touring around with There's Nothing Out There, going to uh, film festivals and trying to get this movie uh, seen by people. And it took about three years because the film didn't come out until 92. We finished it in 90, and uh, 
92, we finally got the, uh, the film out there in uh, small theatrical and then eventually on video and cable. So, uh, you know, this was, uh, this was a whole different time of making movies. Um, this was really before, you know, the internet and before... Uh, really before Avids and uh, all the new the material. So we actually cut this on a, a Steenbeck machine, uh, one of the old classic uh, editing machines my father had. My father uh, ran a post-production company called Valken Film and Video, and uh, we cut the film there. So we had a great deal with the the post um, and all the sound work, dealing with old-fashioned Foley's. I mean, nowadays, as everyone can tell you, making movies, especially low-budget films, they're done like on a laptop and all the sound work can be done in literally someone's living room or, or bedroom, depending on their setup. And that's how I've been making movies more recently. Um, but back then, I was delighted to have a crane, as that shot obviously is, and uh, access to Steadicam, which was wonderful and uh, really using all the toys. But we were shooting on film, uh, Super 16, and uh, changing the film mags and... Uh, you know, just going through it. It was cheaper than 35, but uh, not nearly as cheap as HD is now. Um, although I still love film, and uh, I've luckily been able to do a few movies on 35mm, um, and even scope, 235 ratio, which I think is great. Uh, the official uh, scope for uh, Super 16, I believe, is 178, and then it's sort of blown up to 185, um, which is letterbox, unlike uh, television, which is 133 for a square screen, but now with all the 16 by 9 TV sets, that all changes. Which I'm very happy about, because now people are much more open to the whole letterboxing and uh, getting closer to what a uh, movie-going experience is in the movie theaters, unlike uh, television. Um, so... Uh, so I made those two films. I went to college. I left college, uh, started touring with this movie. We went to a bunch of film festivals, uh, Florence Film Festival, Ohio Horror Marathon, um, Wine Country Film Festival. Uh, film received a lot of good responses. I was really surprised by the critical response. But um, studios and agents and managers didn't really understand the movie. They uh, did not get the combination of horror and comedy. They did not see uh, why someone warning people that it would take uh, you know two hours for the police to arrive, they'll never make it in time, would work for people. Um, uh, again, this was proven to be uh, incorrect when uh, Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven made uh, Scream in 1996. And if you look at scenes like this, where they're taking, you know, it would take two hours for them to get there, uh, versus uh, Drew Barrymore on the phone saying, you know, they'll never make it in time, you know, haven't you seen enough of scary movies? Uh, you'll see similarities, I would think, between uh, these two films. Um, but uh, I still uh, really enjoyed Scream, and um, if this film was any kind of influence and helped bring the horror genre back, uh, I'm grateful for it because uh, it actually, uh, you know, it's all one big circle, the film business, and uh, everything comes around again. So the fact that... Uh, Scream was so successful, I was able to go back and make horror films that I hadn't been able to do for years and years and uh, make The Hazing and continue with Corpses and Jaclyn Hyde and Nightmare Man um, and hope to, to make some more soon again. Um, and this one I'd like to start to bring up because this is a good point to talk about it. Uh, the sequel. Um, I mentioned this on the original commentary track. However, while I was in post-production on, on There's Nothing Out There and we were trying to sell it, I thought it would be kind of fun. Uh, I came up with the title and the tagline and thought that was so much fun. 
So the idea was, you know, are we going to do a sequel? I said, yes, it should be called There's Still Nothing Out There with the tagline, If You Were Afraid of Nothing, It's Back. None of this was thought of when we directed this scene, of course, so unlike some people that say, oh, it was always intended to be a trilogy, uh, no, there's nothing out there, it was never intended to be more than what it was. But I thought it would be kind of fun to continue the story and uh, figure out which missing pieces we could um, move in on. So the sequel of There's of Still Nothing Out There, it actually picks up exactly where Nothing Out There left off, uh, the, the screenplay, um, uh, where Mike and uh, Janet and Nick... Uh, again, if you have not watched the movie yet, please do not be listening to this first. <laughs> As Craig said in the original one, you're doing this wrong. Um, but uh, hopefully you've seen the movie. Anyway, three survivors of the film are in the plumber's truck driving back, and they run into Sally, the girl from the beginning of the scene, who disappeared in the woods, who now suddenly has green eyes. And uh, she didn't have green eyes before. She had blue eyes in the first scene. Uh, so they throw out of the van and drive away, uh, thinking that she's been possessed or impregnated by the creature. Turns out in the sequel, yes, she has, and she immediately starts convulsing from that place in the movie, and we zoom into her stomach as it tears open, and we zoom in, and the credits pop out, rather than the creature, don't want to give it away yet, into There's Still Nothing Out There. Meanwhile, there they are, Craig and Nick and Bonnie are zipping away from the accident, and to avoid a car coming the opposite direction, they actually drive off the road, smash the plumber's truck, which goes tumbling down the hill, and everyone except for Mike is killed. Another car pulls up and takes Mike off to the hospital, and Mike is recovered um, because of the bad accidents. Uh, they had to do some uh, surgery on him, so now he looks uh, 20 years older. So if we do make the sequel, maybe Craig would come back looking 20 years older. We can explain it because luckily it's a horror comedy, so uh, that will explain the, the age difference. And I made jokes about that in the script, too. Over the years, I have revised the screenplay to try to keep it current. Um, although I do think it would be a great idea to actually do the sequel as a uh, complete continuation and actually set it in 1989. So uh, rather than referencing Scream and all these self-reflexive movies that have come on since then, it would go back to the original film and we would do it as a period piece and do the music and the clothes and the hair all as the late 80s, which I think would be kind of neat. So um, anyway, so those, those uh, skinny-dipping punks that just left uh, uh, would come back again in the sequel too. Um, Highly doubt we could get Cyvorus, but maybe we could in between his writing assignments. He's a very, very successful screenwriter and uh, uh, TV show writer at, in Hollywood right now. He's probably the most successful film person of this group. Anyway, um, so what happens is Mike is taken to the hospital in the sequel. And he is uh, questioned by the police because he's the only survivor of the massacre that happens at this house where everyone has been cut to pieces and eaten and melted, so they think he's some kind of possible psycho psychopath. He's trying to explain to them what really happened. Of course, blaming it on an alien creature from outer space is not a good alibi. So once he's recovered, the police uh, decide to escort him to the station to question him further and take him in the police car. Unfortunately, they're driving along the same road where Sally has been ripped apart by the creature into the new creature. Something scurries along across the road, and the police stop the car with Mike locked in the back seat to investigate. Um, they find the lower half of Sally, and they think she's been tripped, ripped in half, but what's actually happened is the creature in its new form is like a, uh, a sort of a shell crab or a uh, like a turtle. And it actually is attached to the lower part of her body and rips out and starts killing the policeman so it can run on the hind legs uh, of Sally and sort of half creature, half bottom half of a woman, 
Kind of a cool design. I drew some pictures of the creature. I think it would be a neat continuation. Anyway, the police are killed. Mike is then attacked. He's trapped in the back of the police car, so he has to struggle to get out. He managed to escape at the last minute. Um, and uh, again, this was written way before Scream 2. Did a scene similar to this. So now I'd be copying them, but uh, not really. Um, he gets away, and the creature gets stuck in the grill inside the police car. So, uh, you know, it, it, Mike's able to escape. Mike then runs off into the woods. Now the creature's after him. The police find the, the two killed policemen and destroyed cars. So now they are sure that Mike is the biggest psychopath in the world. So there's an all-manhunt going on him, you know, with the police department. He runs off looking for help, and he finds this house in the woods that uh, seems like to be like this shack, this little mom-pa house, nice place. He goes inside. There's a family living there. Uh, they seem to be cool. And Mike thinks he's okay until suddenly the back door to the room, to the to one of the bedrooms, bursts open. And uh, Cy Voris, playing the uh, lead skinny bigger pump, punk, comes stumbling out, calling for help. And then suddenly someone with a huge mallet smashes him in the back of the head and drags him back into the room. And Mike realizes that he's found the Texas Chainsaw Massacre family. So Mike is thrown onto the table and strapped down and they're going to eat him for dinner. Um, you know, they got Ma and Pa and uh, the big, you know, guy, complete parody of the whole Leatherface thing. Uh, however, there's a really cute uh, cannibal girl with a heart of gold, and uh, she kind of likes Mike, and they're about to eat him, however, when suddenly the police report on the radio says, we're on the lookout for Mike Fry, uh, Mike Frey, depending on how you pronounce his name, um, who's one in connection with the killing of all these people, and um, they think Mike is one of them. So uh, they... Uh, untie him and say, hey, welcome to the family. And Mike's like, uh, no, you don't understand. I'm kind of in the wrong movie here. And, uh, you know, you know, I, I got to be leaving and there's something after me. And eventually the creature does find Mike and winds up killing everybody in the family, saving Mike in the process. Mike escapes with the uh, cannibal girl with the heart of gold. She's the only one who lives. So she jumps in on him, the mute cannibal girl. And they're riding down and racing out to escape from the creature. And they slam into the plumber's truck, which is actually going to be the twin brother of Mark Culver, played by my, Jim right there, getting grabbed by Wendy. So he could return in another role. And he's actually the son of, well, in the, in the script, he'd be the son of the, uh, the plumber who died in the first film. And he wants revenge for the death of his father. So um, he's after to kill Mike, <laughs> just like in this movie. And uh, Mike escapes with the, with the cannibal girl. And they're racing out trying to uh, prove their innocence and escape the creature. Okay. So, now, uh, what's been going on during this is we introduce some new characters. There's like five new girls who are driving up to the camp by the lake that the, the punks were headed towards in the first film because one of the girls just broke up with her boyfriend and is very suicidal and depressed, so all of her friends want to help her and get away for a vacation at uh, her uncle's um, uh, camp by the lake. Uh, this is where we also introduce Anne, who uh, is a girl who actually is the female version of Mike, who's seen every horror film on video and and knows just as much as Mike does, and she keeps referencing sequels of horror films that everything sounds like a sequel. So all the references in There's Still Nothing Out There would be to sequel references. Anyway, they wind up getting to the house, to the uh, camp by the lake, and discover that it no longer exists. Uh, business was not good, so they converted it to a maple syrup factory. And there's this one handsome young guy who's the guard, who's, who's, who's guarding the place. But he lets them in, and they still have a swimming pool and some of the amenities from the camp, but it's mostly a maple syrup factory. 
So the girl who broke up with uh, her boyfriend, who's suicidal immediately, as soon as she sees the guard, she falls in love with him and is all over him. And then the girls decide to hang out, and one has a video camera and is trying to make their own horror film, and they're hanging out and partying in this uh, maple syrup factory resort, which I had never really seen. I was thinking about where can we set a horror film in the woods that wouldn't be another house or a camp and something's different, and I thought maple syrup factory. Kind of cool. Anyways, fate would have it, Mike and uh, uh, Deirdre, who actually is the name of the uh, cannibal girl with the heart of gold, uh, wind up getting to the uh, maple syrup factory being chased by the creature. So they think they finally have help. However, the girls hear the report, and they think Mike is this killer, so they wind up knocking him out, tying him up. The mute cannibal girl can't really explain because she can't talk. Um, and nobody will listen to her except uh, Anne, the, the horror, female horror movie ex expert, um, finds Mike very intriguing and they have a whole conversation about movies and, and horror films. As the creature, unbeknownst to anyone, arrives at the maple syrup factory and starts doing what it likes to do, you know, killing the guys and trying to reproduce with the women. So it gets down to Mike finally teaming up with the few girls that are left, which of course is Anne and Deirdre to fight off the creature from inside the uh, factory. Some of the girls are possessed by the creature using its laser hypno lights. Um, they finally were able to uh, get an axe on the creature and they rip it out of its sort of uh, turtle shell to discover that actually the creature is a mute Siamese twin creature connected at the head with uh, tentacles going in both directions. One were inside Sally's feet and one were the arms and they wind up splitting the creature in half, using the axe, and now we have two creatures running around trying to kill them. See, it's a sequel. Everything comes in twos. So they're fighting them in the maple syrup factory with all the, the girders and the levels a la, you know, Terminator 2. Um, when the police finally get the report and they show up and Mike runs outside, thinks he's safe, and they all open fire on Mike and he dives in at the last minute and manages to survive and then he starts chasing the creature and they have the final confrontation where uh, Mike saves the day and the creature is destroyed and Mike is hurt, but he goes to the hospital and everything's fine and we think it's over and then suddenly he hears something happening in the bed next to him, which is uh, Mama from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre family, of course, was not killed by the creature, but impregnated and she's about to give birth in the, uh, the bed next to Mike. Mike gets up and says, oh no, there's not going to be a third film. He reaches into the closet, pulls out his jacket, pulls out a uh, bazooka gun, and opens fire and says, clear, and that's the end of the movie. Uh, so that was pretty much, in a nutshell, the entire sequel story to There's Still Nothing Out There. If we ever make it, it'll probably still be fun to watch with enough uh, sex and violence and nudity and comedy to uh, appeal to the fans of the first film. However, to do it properly, I want to have more money and a little bit more time, and uh, otherwise it's really not worth doing and disappointing the fans of the first movie. So we have not made the film, even though there's been many talks about it over the years. And uh, I'd still be open to do it. Um, and I still think that story could work, especially set in 1989. Uh, would be a lot of fun. And, um, you know, if we couldn't get Mike, I guess we could do a Phantasm Two deal and uh, get someone else to do the role. But uh, I'd love for Craig to come back to play the part. Um, you know, he... Uh, he recently had a big, uh, you know, as we all did, 40th birthday, and, and I heard had a whole reunion, uh, like a, a high school reunion, and they gave everybody uh, little bags of green slime and uh, little things of shaving cream uh, as a remembrance of there's nothing out there. Um, 
So that was kind of cool. I missed I missed it, but uh, I heard it was fun. So that's the uh, the sequel to There's Still Nothing Out There. Um, going back to this movie, uh, we're now in the scene with uh, Janet and David in the woods. Um, this was actually the scene that probably, in a lot of ways, most reminded me of uh, Scream, where uh, where Randy, played by Jamie Kennedy, is uh, talking to the television set, watching Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, saying, look behind you, look behind you, why does he look behind you? Um, and the killer's coming up behind him in Scream. Whereas this story was kind of the same idea with her telling about people are too stupid to notice a creature that was right on top of them when the creature is right on top of them. So, like I said, even if Kevin Williamson didn't see the movie, you know, our, our thoughts were in the same place. Um, and, uh, you know, they had a lot more time and money and professional actors and everything else to, to really pull it off. And, uh, you know, and Scream was a scary movie, whereas, of course, there's nothing out there. It's really a joke from beginning to end. So, uh, you know, this film I don't think would ever reach the... Uh, the success rate of Scream, but uh, it's nice to see that I was uh, at least on the same track and uh, the ideas were good. And um, this has kind of been a theme in uh, in my career, in a way, um, personally speaking, because uh, after after this movie and a few other films, I did a movie called uh, Tomorrow by Midnight, um, which was about four kids that take a video store hostage for college students to rent out a video and wind up taking the store because they get into a fight with the clerk. Um, the movie is, is probably my most personal film to date. Uh, you cannot find it in the U.S. It has still not been released. Uh, it was produced by uh, Alan Saritsky, and uh, we had a decent budget. Alexis Arquette, Carol Kane, Jorge Garcia, Scott Rinker, William Voigt, uh, Tamara Craig Thomas, um, Jennifer Lambert. Uh, really good cast of actors, young actors, and... Uh, Unfortunately, we made the movie, and right after we made it, uh, the Columbine school shooting happened, and people got really scared of the film and didn't want to talk about a movie that dealt with high school kids with guns, even though we were actually addressing that issue. So the film got lost in the shuffle and uh, never came out in America, was released in Europe finally as uh, Midnight Five or After Midnight, not to be confused with the uh, the, the Wheat Brothers um, you know, uh, anthology horror film called After Midnight that is released here. So, um, anyway, that film kind of, uh, you know, didn't predict anything, but was uh, right at the same time that the world, that things were happening with this whole violence issue, and uh, we kind of uh, got lost in, the, in that whole thing and never came out. I then did that film. After that film, I immediately did a movie called Pretty Cool, which was my homage to uh, teen sex comedies. About five or six years earlier, I tried to make a movie called Hormones the Movie, which was really a uh, homage to all of those uh, weird science and uh, I think they call them sci-fi comedies like uh, the Party Animal and um, you know Modern Problems with uh, Chevy Chase and uh, a bunch of those kind of comedies. Uh, you know I had been kind of annoyed saying you know there hadn't been any real R-rated you know teen comedies in a long time. They'd all turned into Jennifer Love Hewitt PG-13 things. And what happened to all the good, uh, you know, risky business and porkies and movies like that. So I was trying to get this movie called Hormones the Movie uh, uh, made. We actually did a, um, a photo shoot and did a one sheet with uh, Julie Strain and Brink Stevens who were going to be in it. But could never really raise the money. Almost did and last minute fell apart. And then a few years later, American Pie was made and uh, brought the genre back. Um, which was good, but uh, we wish I had been able to do it before they did it. Uh, however, because... It had been so successful, American Pie, 
the producer I've been working with, who would produce Tomorrow by Midnight, Alon Saritsky, he uh, decided, let's do a, uh, a team comedy. So I wrote a script called Pretty Cool. Now, Pretty Cool is um, uh, was made uh, following Tomorrow by Midnight. Uh, we shot it in 2000. And uh, turned out really well. Good young cast of people. I was very pleased with the movie. And again, we could not sell it because there were no names in it. Uh, even though this genre was successful, they didn't know how to sell it. So it sat there on the shelf for about five years. Until finally, uh, I made another movie after that called The Hazing, which was my return to horror comedy. Again, thanks to Scream, the genre was successful and uh, we were able to raise the money years, years later because I wrote the script seven years earlier. But in 2003, I was able to do The Hazing with uh, Tiffany Shepis and, uh, and uh, do something like this again, you know, with... Uh, a bigger budget, uh, almost a million dollars. And that film turned out really well. However, the producer of that movie didn't quite understand the comedy horror aspects of it. He just thought the movie was cheesy and not scary. Um, and I said, well, that's what it is. You know, it's it's a horror comedy. It's an homage to Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 and Night of the Demons. And, um, you know, but he didn't quite get it. So he didn't really push it. It never really played any festivals and got released through a company called MTI who, uh, a Florida-based company who put it out. Well, the film did very, very well on video and, and Blockbuster and everything that I started talking to MTI and they said, do you have any other films? And I said, well, I got this movie called Pretty Cool. So finally, after all that time, Pretty Cool was able to be released and surprised everyone by doing really, really well on video. Uh, it rented like crazy because people liked it and the word of mouth sold the movie. So after, uh, so after, so a little bit after that, you know, now that it was five years later, Saritsky decided to produce Pretty Cool 2, which I wound up doing as a very, very, very low-budget movie um, that was made and went straight to video and did okay for itself um, and stuff like that. Speaking of teen comedies, like here, you know, these kind of little sexy moments and transitions uh, uh, fit very well with that. Um, so anyway, uh, The Hazing turned out well. Uh, I was able to continue making some more horror films for a while, like uh, Corpses and Jacqueline Hyde and Nightmare Man, which became one of the eight films to die for. Um, none of them really got me any money. I started, I was producing more now, um, so I was actually being able to make the movies I wanted to make and finish them, and they got released. But um, the way the uh, the business structure of this town is, it's it's very very hard and impossible to make any money from distributors. So unless you're your own distributor. And if you're a new distributor, you don't need the connections to all the video stores and the markets and the chains to get in there. So, um, you know, Lloyd Kaufman at Trauma, you know, know very well about this. And uh, I'm very excited because I do think there's nothing out there. Um, we'll finally get uh, the best release it's gotten, uh, with the exception of probably the uh, the cable sale way back when. So um, that's kind of the history of, uh, of that. Uh, so back to There's Nothing Out There. We're now at the creature running through the ground. Again, like I said, that was a remote control truck that we put under the creature and drove him around. The only way to do it. Um, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a long shoot, um, for me, but, uh, overall this went pretty smoothly, this film. Uh, it was nice to have a real crew, uh, the cast really worked hard, really wanted this to be something special. 
uh, with the exception of the one cast member who I had the issues with that we talk about on the other commentary track, so I won't go into it here. Um, but, um, you know, looking back 20 years, yeah, the film surprisingly holds up. Uh, as I said, it's, it's, uh, I've been amazed at how many fans are, are, you know, people do know of this movie and, uh, and, uh, have discovered it over the years and, and found it to be fun and, and have seen the similarities to the Scream issue. Some people think that, uh, you know, yes, it's there, but, you know, Scream is a thousand times better and, you know, there's no competition. Other people think this has more of a, a natural feel to it. It has less Hollywood vibe. Haha, <laughs> surprise, surprise. There's no Hollywood. Um, and it's more realistic that Mike is a more believable character than Randy. Um, again, I don't really take sides on any of that stuff. I think uh, both the films work uh, for what they are. Um, <clears throat> this scene here with the bubbles, we did have one of our crew people on the scuba diving outfit, the scuba diving gear to, uh, to do the bubbles. Really cold, very uncomfortable, but, uh, you know, <laughs> we made it happen. Everyone worked really hard trying to get this film to, to, to work. So, um, <clears throat> you know, just looking back 20 years. So this was the first time I really dealt with nudity in a film. Um, you know, coming from the 80s and, and all these movies, I felt that, you know, people like these movies, but they do want to see some naked women they want to see some gore um i've never been uh afraid of showing either i'm not a big uh gore hound necessarily i uh i like the over-the-top stuff I'm, i mean, i love reanimator and uh night of the creeps and uh of course fright night and american welfare london and all that kind of stuff but uh the whole trend that came after all this with the uh, torture porn i guess I, i'm not really a big fan of uh, so here too is like you know the violence usually quick and and uh, more striking and sudden than uh, stretching it out and just going to town with it unless you're going for over the top you know almost comedic effect like in Reanimator and Bad Taste and early Peter Jackson films which I think are great so um, actually when I when I made the hazing I was I was hoping to get more of that into that into that film I. Uh, uh, the the tongue scene in the hazing for anyone who's seen it uh, was was close the closest that I got to to how I wanted to see that film. There were more sequences that were supposed to be over the top, but the producer of that film was even more scared of the violence than I was, and he didn't want too much gore messing up the story. So uh, there was a lot of stuff I wasn't able to do in that film, uh, violence wise. But it would have been much more over the top because for that storyline with Evil Dead, Evil Dead Two, it worked. The over the top is is great, part of the fun. <clears throat> um, but when going back to the nudity issues, uh, as you'll see here, we, we've got plenty. Um, you know, there's always been this double-sided thing about violence is acceptable in the society, but nudity is, is horrible and, you know, you shouldn't show a naked body. You know, you can, if you, if you show a bare tit, it's rated R, it's X. If you cut it off, it's R, you know, the, the whole double standard thing. So actually when I did the Tomorrow by Midnight, I talked about that issue and, you know, when I started working for Alon Saritsky, who had produced uh, the original Manuel movie and uh, does a lot of that late night uh, Cinemax fair, um, I thought it was a great learning experience. You know, we were shooting movies in six days sometimes. Uh, I'd done some films uh, that have come out over the years, Rod Steel 0014, which is a James Bond parody, uh, erotica, softcore thing, and uh, the erotic misadventures of Invisible Man. 
um, where you know definitely the comedy and the uh, the nudity factor was emphasized. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, you know, uh, the naked body is is not a horrible thing. So um, so over year over the years, yeah, I've done a lot of nudity in my films. But uh, again, a lot of times it's requested by the producers that want even more because uh, in Europe nudity sells better than violence. Um, so that time, why there's sometimes two versions of these films. I've heard that this film, There's Nothing Out There, was majorly cut in, in Germany, surprisingly enough, down to a... Uh, I've never even seen that version of it, but I do know there's like a, two versions of the film and probably all the violence is gone. And probably the nudity is still there because they don't care about the nudity, you know. Um, so, uh, speaking of which, um, we're, we're, we're about to come to one of my favorite parts, my, my Pink Panther homaged fight sequence. Uh, with uh, with Mark and, and Craig, um, which I thought they did a great job, and uh, it was really fun to do that and to do it in the middle of a supposedly horror film. I think I, looking back, I'd say that that's been part of my uh, reputation. Is I I, uh, I make films that the producers don't always necessarily know they're getting. Um, they're usually all Rolf Kineski flicks, at least the ones I left my name on, uh, but they're a little bit different, you know. So. Like, there's nothing out there. This film, I, I've read reviews over the years where people said, um, the first two times I saw this movie, I hated it, and then I realized it was funny. It was supposed to be funny, and now it's one of my favorite films. Um, I've always felt with, with, uh, with comedy and horror comedy that uh, I, I, I'd rather treat the audience with respect and hope they get the jokes than, uh, than tell them flat off that this is a joke. You know, pie in the face, this is a joke. I mean, this movie has a lot of slapstick, like this whole sequence coming up, and I can't see how you can't see that it's supposed to be funny. Because, like I said, I, I producers over the years, I um, when I was going around when I first came out to Hollywood when we opened the film up for the midnight shows, um, well, first off, no agents and managers would even come to the screenings because they, they never heard of it, nobody was in it. Then once it got a good review in the LA Times, everyone started calling and wanting to see the movie and companies and they all watched it and they seemed to enjoy it, but they didn't get it. They were like, well, it's funny. It's a horror film, isn't it? Why is it funny? Horror films aren't supposed to be funny. Um, I remember my favorite one was I, I talked and I eventually worked with for a little time uh, a producer. He was, he had just left it. He was an agent for a while named Chris Moore. He had worked at uh, ICM and had sold the uh, Last Action Hero script which uh, had not made any money, and um, uh, he was uh, given this film, and because I think someone said it's like a, a horror version of The Last Action Hero, and he watched it and he said, I really enjoyed it, but I laughed a lot, was I supposed to? And I said, yes, yes, you were supposed to laugh. Um, a little side note with that is uh, a couple of years later, when Chris left uh, uh, at the agency and, and became a producer before he became a big producer, because um, he went on to be producer on the Project Greenlight movies and American Pies and uh, and all that other kind of stuff. Um, he called me up and he was d dealing with this company uh, called uh, Intellifilm and they were trying to do these interactive movies in the movie theaters. This was a very short-lived idea where they put joysticks in the theaters and it was like a choose-your-own-adventure and it was like a short film and you did multiple versions and then people could choose if a character should live or die or go left or right or whatever they say. And he thought it'd be a great idea to turn "There's Nothing Out There" into one of these, uh, you know, interactive movies. So he hired me, and I actually worked for months on this big "There's Nothing Out There" esque uh, storyline, where you could choose the different ways the story could progress. Um, 
and it turned out really well. Uh, they they liked it a lot. Uh, however, just before they were going to greenlight the project, the uh, the company went belly up because it didn't catch on, which I kind of knew was going to happen. So the film never got made. At the time, Chris Moore was um, a little depressed because he'd been trying to get this project called uh, Goodwill Hunting off the ground, and it wasn't going anywhere, and a few other things weren't happening. So I gave him a few of my other screenplays, um, some horror films and some thrillers, and he read them and sent me a note saying that uh, you know they're very well written, but... These are really B-movies, and I really have higher aspirations than that, and, uh, you know, um, I don't really want to read any more of your screenplays unless you come up with something that's much better and bigger than that because I have no intention of doing that kind of film. And so I lost contact with them over the years, and uh, it was funny because um, years later, of course, uh, after two Project Green Lights, they decided to make something that would be sellable and teamed up with Wes Craven to do Feast, uh, directed by a director, a friend of mine named John Gulliger, which uh, I said, hmm, horror comedy. There we go. And uh, and then Chris uh, recently made his directing debut with one of the uh, um, uh, Ghost House movies that came out. Uh, the only the eight films to die for, I think. Uh, Kill Theory, that uh, is a horror film, which was his directing debut. So uh, it all it's all circular. It all comes around. So maybe one day Chris and I will talk again and uh, discuss the <laughs> the old times and the new times. Um, anyway, so that's the history there. Other stories. After uh, uh, There's Nothing Out There uh, was finished um, and we were showing it around and getting this weird response from uh, agents and managers, I did have this uh, one great screening uh, with Robert Zemeckis, actually. Uh, my cousin Michael Burley had been working as a PA at the time and on a movie called Ricochet and wound up meeting Robert's then-wife, um, who uh, he's now married to another woman who actually had done some work in the softcore business and starred in a script that I wrote for Alon Saritsky called Restless Souls. Um, so again, small world. But back when I met Robert Zemeckis, um, none of that had happened. He saw There's Nothing Out There. He was very cool about it. He watched the whole movie. He liked it. He didn't love it because at the time they were doing Tales from the Crypt and I thought I would have been a great candidate to direct an episode of Tales from the Crypt. But uh, at that point, that's when you know Michael J. Fox and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Tom Hanks were all directing episodes of Tales from the Crypt. So... Um, you know, bigger names, so I, I never really made in the door there. But he was very encouraging, and his advice to me was just, you know, write a great script. It proves, you know, you know how to direct a movie, and, uh, you know, do it that way. So ever since then, I've been writing and writing and writing and continuing to make independent films. I've sold a couple screenplays over the years uh, that I didn't direct, um, but I've never really broken out into the Hollywood system yet. But uh, we'll see. I keep going at it. Anyway, um, so so there's nothing out there, you know, it's, it's been funny because it, it keeps coming back throughout my whole career and, uh, you know, every time I meet someone, uh, I'm surprised, you know, when they always know the movie and, and say, oh yeah, I remember it way back when and I enjoyed it. And like I said, this has happened uh, many times when I met Kevin Smith, when I met Eli Roth, when I met Joe Lynch, um, you know, like I said, Scott Spiegel, I heard Tarantino is a fan of the movie. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, you know. So movies do take on their own own lives and uh, sometimes refuse to go away. Um, and this is the big cliffhanger when we first see the movie creature for the first time right here. So it is, like I said, about halfway through the movie, almost almost at the halfway part. Um, we get the first look at the creature quickly. And uh, we go into the next day. So, speaking of next days... <laughs> Um, 
after this film, uh, a couple years later, I made the move to California and uh, finally met uh, producer Lon Saritsky. He started producing some other films of mine. Uh, through him, I met the producer of uh, The Hazing. Um, then I, uh, you know, just kept plugging away on it and uh, have continued going back. Uh, funny thing was after, after a bit, around 19, about 1999 is where I met, uh, Tiffany Sheppes, who, uh, I'll speak a little bit about her since, uh, she's got a big, uh, history with Troma as well, starring in Tromeo and Juliet and beginning her whole career there. Um, anyway, Tiffany, um, I met at the American Film Market, like I met Saritsky and a lot of other people. At the time, she had a, uh, uh, her own company called uh, Prescription Films, where she was uh, trying to buy and sell movies after working for Troma. She learned a lot from Lloyd and decided to uh, to try to do it herself. And she was also, I think, trying to be a producer and develop some scripts for her as an actress. And around that time, I was going around trying to raise the money for the hazing. And I gave her a copy of the script. Uh, she really liked it. Um, I think I showed her there's nothing out there. And she might have watched it or at least watched some of it and enjoyed that movie. And she loved the part of Marsha. She wanted to do the film. She tried to raise the money. She couldn't raise the money. But I kept her in mind, and I you know, kept with her for a while. We worked very quickly once on uh, something for Saritsky on a, in a cameo role she did. Um, her, her credits and somewhere say that she's in Pretty Cool. She's not in Pretty Cool. She was supposed to be in Pretty Cool, but she did not wind up doing the role. <clears throat> but anyway, as uh, fate would have it, uh, a couple years later when the money finally came through to the hazing, I thought of Tiffany. She auditioned a bunch of times and, and got the role, and that was the first time I really worked with her and discovered what a great actress she was, and uh, we had a great time on that film and then wrote uh, Corpses for her, which she got to do, um, which was a miserable experience, but um, the friendship continued. And uh, then uh, she went off and had a baby uh, while I did Jacqueline Hyde. That's why she's not in Jacqueline Hyde, because she was pregnant at the time. Although I did offer her to be a pregnant stripper, but she refused. So it was not my fault. Um, and then decided to try to do, uh, when she when she came back, after she had uh, her, her baby daughter, to do her first comeback film, Nightmare Man. Which luckily my parents were uh, ready to try to produce another film, since uh, there's nothing out there. And, uh, you know, I kept the film... Film had kept itself alive, and I had kept it going, too. Uh, if you look at all my movies, or a lot of them, you'll see little references to There's Nothing Out There. Uh, Mark, uh, who plays Jim, played a bartender in Pretty Cool, wearing the, uh, the cap of There's Nothing Out There. Um, I have a small walkthrough cameo wearing the T-shirt of There's Nothing Out There in My Family Treasure, the film that I did after this movie. Uh, we, we had it in uh, The Hazing when they have to steal the uh, the photo of Bruce Campbell for the scavenger hunt, in that shot there was a videotape, and on the monitor was playing. There's nothing out there, but you can't really see it in the movie the way it's cut, so it didn't really make it in there. Although you do see the poster to Tomorrow by Midnight at the movie theater where they steal the uh, the movie theater seat. So I got that in there. In uh, Tomorrow by Midnight, we have, of course, showing clips from There's Nothing Out There, as well, well as the poster to Bloodsucking Freaks. Uh, the uh, trailer to Killer Eye, which I worked on, one of the writers for the Charlie Band film, which did not turn out to be great. Don't bother seeing it. And um, a lot of other references of, of people and things that worked on that movie. Uh, you know, Tamara Craig Thomas, who was actually starred in Tromeo and Juliet, who's also one of the leads in Tomorrow by Midnight. She's the blonde. She's You can see her on the poster of Tromeo and Juliet in the background. So it was kind of a fun uh, retro thing of everything. 
Anyway, so, uh, so nothing out there kept coming back, and um, uh, finally we decided to, uh, to make Nightmare Man, which is a script I wrote really quickly while I was in post-production on Jacqueline Hyde. I was creatively bored and just decided to knock out a script in seven days. And people read it, really liked it. It seemed like it was doable for a low amount of money. Since I had produced Jacqueline Hyde and uh, didn't make any money from that film, um, got released to Warner Brothers. The producer who produced the movie got his money back, and the lead actress, Gabriella Hall, uh, did fine for herself, met a guy, moved to Europe, and uh, disappeared. Um, my parents thought, well, we should do one ourselves and own it and try to make money ourselves. We, we never really made money, and there's nothing out there. We barely broke even. But let's try it again, 14 years later, which uh, my father was all for, and my mother was uh, talked into and uh, not too enthusiastic now since uh, it didn't make a lot of money. But um, we made the film, um, and we got it picked up by a good distributor after a long process. Uh, Tiffany's really proud of the film. I think it's one of her best performances, as well as the one in The Hazing. I think she's great in both of those films. And uh, the film got out there uh, in a big way and theatrical, thanks to uh, After Dark Films and Lionsgate. But uh, again, we didn't see any money because uh, the way they cross-collateralized their their uh, income, the first two years of After Dark, those first 14 films, or no, 16 films, um, didn't really see a profit at all because of the expenses and the P&A costs and stuff like that. So, uh, so even with all that aggravation and work and uh, the fact that it's made supposedly millions of dollars, we haven't seen any of it. Uh, so I highly doubt that my parents are ever going to produce There's Still Nothing Out There or any other film again. Um, but, uh, but we did uh, follow it through and got both this movie and Nightmare Man into the theaters. And of course the in-jokes continue in uh, Nightmare Man. Um, you, you do see, of course, that uh, one of the characters is wearing a uh, There's Nothing Out There t-shirt. Uh, which I thought was kind of fun, and we do do an homage to the um, to the uh, to the uh, M and M jar that's in this movie. Uh, if you catch it quickly, uh, Nightmare Man, they uh, they shoot it, and uh, the M and M's explode, which is like the baseball bat coming up. Um, anyway, so uh, that was actually the last time I was able to work in the horror genre. Uh, I've written plenty of scripts that I'd love to do. A lot of vehicles for Tiffany Shepis. Um We've worked together, I think, eight times now. And uh, you'll see a little short, fun comedy we did called Mood Boobs on this disc. Um, and we were trying to get a thing called Once Upon a Horror off the ground, which would be like a kind of Tales from the Crypt uh, anthology show with Tiffany, Tiffany Shepes uh, being the Elvira-like hostess of the show and starring in a few episodes. We actually shot the wraparounds, uh, but have yet to uh, raise the money to shoot any of the stories. I have uh, the first four stories which could work together as an anthology movie or it could be a pilot for the TV series. Um, again, if anybody out there has any money, uh, feel free to contact me at, uh, you know, there's nothing out there.com or uh, Rolf30 at yahoo.com. <laughs> anyway, um, so back to there's nothing out there. Um, this was a fun scene. The tentacles are ridiculous. They don't move. We didn't have a lot of money, but uh, Craig did a great job, even though he glances the camera a few times during this sequence, which he wasn't supposed to. Uh, <laughs> he tried very hard not to look at the camera. Um, but it was also hard to look at Bonnie. <laughs> yeah, she was not acting too well. <clears throat> but, um, anyway, uh, what else to say? Uh... 
Well, after Nightmare Man and its uh, big release, uh, I was able to uh, finally do another movie, uh, which I recently completed, called One of the Gun, which is my first attempt to do a uh, film noir movie. There was actually no references to There's Nothing Out There in that film because I was trying to do it straight. There's humor in the film, but it's not a uh, spoof of film noir. It's a modern neo-noir movie with a nod to David Lynch and a few things like that. But I got to work with some really great actors on that, and uh, I've just heard that uh, MTI, who uh, released uh, four of my movies, or five of my movies now, pretty cool, pretty cool too, uh, The Hazing and uh, Alien Files, way back when, it, uh, will be releasing One in the Gun, maybe early next year, I'm not quite sure the release date. Um, so, uh, you know, 2010 is turning out to be an interesting year of, uh, of distribution, um, I went back to work with Saritsky on this uh, nightmare project that I'm, uh, it's not you know, its not a horror film, but it's a horror of an experience that I'm not going to talk about because I don't know what names are being used. Uh, but uh, I'm learning a lot of things that uh, I enjoy doing and never want to do again. Uh, at the same time, uh, I was contacted through by uh, Troma uh, to... Uh, you know, get this film out. What actually happened was for to explain how this how this re-release came about twenty years later. Uh, Ramsey Abed, actually a, a fellow filmmaker, a friend of mine, who was actually born on the same day as me, March fifth, um, saw there's nothing out there. Was a big fan of the film, and uh, he used to acquire films for Trauma. Now, of course, Trauma and Lloyd Kaufman has known about these movies forever. I've actually, uh, from my experience of working with Lloyd, you know, back on Trauma's War to actually casting him in a, in a few bit roles. He was in uh, Pretty Cool, although you can't see him, you can hear him. He's the, uh, the neighbor walking his dog when uh, the two lead characters are on the ground, stuck. It looks like they're humping. Uh, he walks by and says, make sure you use protection. And he's actually in the end of Tomorrow by Midnight, which of course you haven't seen because it hasn't been released, as the owner of the video store, uh, which is not surprising since half the store is made up of uh, trauma posters. They were nice enough to give us uh, posters and trailers and all that stuff in the background, so... It's Trauma Central there. Trauma, Roger Corman, and Full Moon. So it's the ultimate B-movie store. Uh, but he played the owner of the store, and uh, his scene was cut, but would be in the deleted section of the DVD if the movie's ever released with a special feature section. Um, anyway, so yes, of course, they were aware of There's Nothing Out There. They wanted it way back when, when we made the film, but we didn't give it to them at the time. But 20 years later, we got the rights back. It had been released, had a nice little release, but I said, let's try to do something with it. So last year, uh, 2009, I was going around the American film market again, uh, and while I was pushing my new film, One of the Gun, I said, well, let's bring back some of my old films that are sitting around collecting dust that still haven't been released, like Tomorrow by Midnight, and uh, there's nothing out there. Well, Alon Sarisky still owns Tomorrow by Midnight and has refused to let that film been released because he doesn't want anybody else making money off of his movie that he hasn't made money off of, so it's sort of sitting there. Although, one day, if you ever get to see it, you know, 35mm, beautiful-looking movie, really enjoy that film. But luckily, my parents, who are my father who owns There's Nothing Out There, uh, agreed to uh, let me try to re-release this movie. So I took it around, and Trauma expressed interest. I talked to a guy named Matt, who was instrumental in this. He watched the movie. Everyone said this would be a great Trauma release, and they're starting to do Blu-ray now, so why don't we do a 20th anniversary? I said, all right. So Ramsey helped get in the door, and Matt picked it up, and Lloyd and Michael Hurt said, okay, and that's why we have this uh, new special edition. Um, the only problem was that uh, all the special features for this disc 
would be needed like now, and I'm in the midst of this nightmare shoot for Saritsky. I have no time, so I'm now staying up all night, or well, working all night, so I'm up all day to, uh, to record this new commentary track and uh, do some intros and some new featurettes. So I'm trying to give you guys more stuff to show uh, you know something cool for the 20th anniversary. I contacted Craig Peck and uh, Mark Culver to see if they could help out too and a few other people for interviews. I would have loved to have done a uh, retrospective documentary called uh, Remembering Nothing or uh, a fond, a fond re memory of nothing. Which would be great because I could see a lot of people off the street saying, you know, what do you remember? What do you remember about there's nothing out there? Nothing, nothing at all. Never saw it. You know, I remember nothing. I remember nothing well. Anyway, so that didn't happen. But uh, maybe for the 30th anniversary release, uh, we'll do that. Um, anyway, uh, back to the film. There's the tree. So Claudia Flora, she was great. Uh, it's funny, um, this is the first time but not the last time that I would work with uh, Brazilian actors. Because uh, uh, <laughs> as an homage, not really, but uh, uh, Nightmare Man, uh, once we went to the first film my parents produced since There's Nothing Out There, was made. Uh, we actually raised some of the money from a Brazilian producer named Federico Lapenda, who put in about $30,000 into the film. And he, however, he was insistent on using a Brazilian actor named uh, Luciano who's like a big um, soap opera actor in, in Brazil. So he played the husband in uh, uh, Nightmare Man. And it's like, well, that's okay, because I've worked with uh, Brazilian actors before, like Claudia, and there's nothing out there. And people say the same thing. They have trouble understanding what he's saying <laughs> um, in, in the film. But um, I don't think it's that hard to understand accents, so why not? So, uh, so yeah, so I've, I've gone back to uh, the two times we produced our own movies, we both with uh, Brazilian actors in, in lead roles. Coincidence or not? Um, anyway, uh, Craig is, uh, you know, I, I was able to work with, uh, with Craig and, and Mark a few more times after this. Anyone who follows uh, my filmography, I kind of like to work with the same actors again if I can, especially if we get along well. So, before Craig uh, got married and got a family and moved to Ohio, uh, I started working for Saritsky and, and cast him in uh, some bit roles. He was in uh, a few of my uh, uh, erotic comedies for Alon Saritsky. Uh, we did a thing called The Click and Butterscotch. Uh, they were released here as uh, The Ultimate Attraction, Rod Steele, 0014, You Only Live Until You Die, uh, Alien Files, uh, uh, Passion and Romance, Double or Nothing. And uh, uh, Craig is in, uh, oh, and uh, The Erotic Inventions of Visible Man. Uh, Craig starred as the genie in Power Flower. Um, some of that is, is released on the uh, R-rated version of The Erotic Inventions of Visible Man, but the entire film of that, where you really see him, has not ever come out yet, maybe one day. Uh, Mark was also in that playing a director, Drew Darwin, uh, in both those movies. Mark also starred in Alien Files that I directed, uh, which was my uh, X-File parody. It's been released in multiple versions. And actually this year, I'm also told that the director's cut for the first time is coming out called Alien Erotica. Um, it's the 86-minute cut, then my preference cut, preferred cut with a commentary track. Uh, so that's cool. And uh, Craig was also in Double Your Pleasure playing a guy who gets hypnotized in a hypno show. And he plays the card dealer in um, uh, Rod Steele, 0014. Uh, where Mark also appears as uh, Dick Longo, the evil henchman to Tangerina, 
uh, in that James Bond parody. So we got to work together again with them. So they all did uh, do some more work with me before they uh, they went on to uh, bigger and better non-film related things. But I didn't give up. I kept plugging away and uh, making these movies and uh, just uh, never really had, you know, enough time or money to, uh, to do them properly. I, I guess uh, One in the Gun and uh, Tomorrow by Midnight are two of my favorites, uh, both because they're both uh, dramas in ways and uh, I found that more challenging. Whereas uh, comedy, horror, uh, comes easy for me and I, I enjoy doing it, but uh, it's not as much of a challenge. Although every movie on this kind of budget and time schedule is a major challenge. Um, and, you know, the ideas of, uh, you know, people being hypnotized to do things against their control and creatures trying to have sex with you. Uh, there's been a current theme in some of those in my other films. Again, not to all my doing. Um, the, uh, the Rod Steele movie, An Ultimate Attraction, is based on a uh, famous comic book by Milo Manara about a remote control that um, uh, sexually turns women on, so uh, that kind of worked into the storyline there. And uh, The Erotic Invention of Invisible Man, the uh, title says it all, it's based on Butterscotch by also Milo Manara, uh, which were Invisible Men having sex with, uh, you know, various women. So uh, that theme has come up. Um, the Sex File series that uh, Lon Swirsky produced that I wound up doing Alien Files for, uh, obviously had elements of, of all that, a little bit of science fiction in there mixed with uh, a lot of aphrodisiac elements. Um, but uh, in those films, I do not chop off uh, girls' heads or uh, break their necks with baseball bats because that's not really too erotic. Although I don't know if my uh, sexy movies are that sexy too because the comedy seems to uh, interrupt the, uh, the eroticism. But uh, you see where my uh, mentality is at. <laughs> Um, anyway, it's, uh, it's a challenge making these films, always is, um, it's never gotten any easier, in case people want to know, uh, you know, 20 years go by and you're still trying to make films, sometimes in, uh, five or six days with very little money, no sleep, no time, doing magic, um, this summer is a pure example of that, uh, but, uh, you know, the idea is if you stick in there and you keep doing it and you hang around, then, you know, who knows, you'll be doing commentary for one of your movies 20 years after it's been made and didn't make a dime. But people still want to see it for some reason. And that's the, uh, the magic and wonder of uh, cult movies and B-movies, that there is an audience for these films. Um, that's the thing I found over the years, too, is that, you know, that's, that's the reason, again, why it's kind of fun to work in the horror genre, because there is an audience. Whereas if you do a film noir movie or a comedy or a drama or thrillers, you really don't have that same kind of fan base that supports uh, this genre. You know, there's not 900 websites out there talking about the latest film noir film. There's some, but not as many as, uh, you know, science fiction and, uh, and horror sites. Um, when, uh, when There's Nothing Out There came out uh, 10 years later, when we did our last special edition of this movie, uh, I, I said I think I was, I was very afraid that, um, that uh, the fans or the, the, the horror community would think that I was ripping off Scream because they didn't know of this movie. And then after Scream, you know, well, this is just a rip off of Scream if you don't look at the date on the movie. But I was very pleased to find that um, actually um, we got really, really good reviews. The, the LA Weekly gave it the video pick of the week. And actually said it's a virtual blueprint for the Kevin Williamson, Wes Craven franchise, uh, which is a great quote. 
Um, and a lot of other people commented in that this is the film that uh, that started that whole scream idea and phase. And uh, you know, that's it's it's kind of fun. Um, another little side note on Kevin Williamson. Uh, I know he's he's been very successful now with the Vampire Diaries and everything, so I'm sure he could take it. But uh, if he did see there's nothing out there and uh, tweaked it enough to make sure it wasn't exactly a word for word similarity to some of the lines. Uh, the one thing I did find, which is about to come up in, in the movie now, is um, when they have this conversation about Invasion of the Body Snatchers, um, after Scream came out, Kevin Williamson wrote a script called The Faculty. And if you remember in that movie, there's a scene on the bleachers where the two girls are sitting around talking about how this reminds them of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And they said, what happened in that one? And they said, everyone died. Uh, as opposed to my conversation coming up, which is, <laughs> you know... Uh, this reminds me of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. How'd they kill him in that one? They didn't. Um, anyway. <laughs> Again, coincidence or not, you be the judge. Uh, of course, that movie has a little more to owe to The Thing, John Carver's The Thing. And of course, we can't forget When a Stranger Calls for the opening of Scream, which at least they did talk about. Uh, years later, after There's Nothing Out There, I did get to work with Carol Kane on Tomorrow by Midnight, and... Uh, and she said, well, we all have our problems with Scream, since she was the star, and of course, in the original uh, When a Stranger Calls, and the wonderful sequel, When a Stranger Calls Back. Um, she also told me there was a great third script for, for that original franchise that uh, Frank Walton wrote, who directed the first two movies, and uh, they were never able to raise the money for it or do it, which is a shame. But that happens a lot in this business. So, um, anyway. This is that. That was the conversation of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. <laughs> It always keeps coming back. Um, and I have references to it, absolutely, in Alien Files and, uh, and other things. Um, so the film, uh, you know, took on a life of its own. Uh, the reviewers seem to really like it. Most, A lot of horror websites really appreciate the film. I'm still finding, you know, bloggers and different uh, little podcasts that talk about this movie. Uh, some of them really like it. Some of them think it's kind of cheesy and silly. Uh, you know, it's everything to everyone, but, uh, at least, uh, they talk about it. That's the big thing. You know, there's, uh, there's no such thing as bad press. So I guess that's true. Um, but, uh, you know, the fan base is out there. Uh, I know people enjoyed the hazing a lot and, uh, and, uh, you know, I hope uh, I can do some more films in the genre. Um, it was great working with Tiffany over the years. You know, we had a good ten-year stretch where we worked together really closely, and uh, I hope to get I hope to get work with her again uh, soon or later. And um, you know, this is what happens. So uh, again, this conversation about how to kill the creature uh, comes back in the sequel. of still nothing out there, and at least they do get an axe to try to kill it. You know. Um, but uh, we're now entering the big finale of the movie, uh, which again, uh, the whole idea of the uh, shaving cream and the light bulbs and the mirrors, I thought would be kind of cool and fun. Um, the hard part about not having any money to make this film, these films, or how you can do a big finale that's, that's impressive. Uh, I love doing the car stuff, where we just jump the car into the pond and... Uh, this has still been the, the first and only time I've been able to actually do, you know, anything with cars and, and messing up cars in movies because we just don't have the money for it. Um, 
But, uh, you know, I love action films too. I'd love to do any kind of, you know, Hong Kong inspired action film. Um, just hasn't happened. Written screenplays. Uh, boy. So, do you have any questions out there? Fortunately, I can't answer them because I can't hear you. But if you have any questions, you can email me at my website about this movie. Uh, I'll be happy to answer them. Anyway, uh, my favorite little bit here. Oh, this, yeah, this, we talk about this on the other commentary too, but this has always come back. The famous boom swing. Uh, this is this is the first thing Eli Roth said to me when he remembers the movie. Oh, yeah, the boom swing. People have talked about this for years, about, you know, escaping the creature by swinging on the boom with the, uh, you know, little little few bars from John Williams' Raiders of the Lost Ark plane. Uh, again, it was a fun idea. You know, I'd seen so many low-budget films where you see the boom shadows or something in there that's not supposed to be that I thought it would be great to play on that convention. And, uh, yeah, I think you can kind of tell. People that, that don't like the boom gag probably don't like this movie. Um, if you like the boom gag, you probably do enjoy the movie. Uh, I think that's, you know, two kind of people in this world. Those who like boom gags and those who don't like boom gags. Um, there's the double for Bonnie running to the car. As I said in the other track, wearing a wig, keeping her head down. Very well done. Um, so, uh, I mean, the nice thing about doing independent films versus Hollywood films, which I can't tell you because I haven't done, is that at least you have the freedom or the control to pretty much do what you want. And despite all the problems and the lacks of money and financing, I have been able to make all the films I've made Rolf Kineski flicks, you know. Um, I've taken my name off a few movies, usually because they didn't turn out that great or there was some sound issue or problems with the films. Um, of course, with the IMBD now, every pseudonym comes back at you, so it's almost impossible to, uh, to get away from your pseudonyms, which kind of stinks because, uh, you know, the whole point of that is that some people don't want to be known for certain things and, uh, you get credits in different genres and you get known for certain things. So, you know, um, you know. I worked a lot with Saritsky over the years on his different erotic franchises. Some things I was happy with, like Rod Steele, that he used my name on. Other things I did writing assignments for and never intended to use my name on it. And uh, they got on there anyway with your pseudonyms, so different credits that I would have preferred not to be on the IMBDR. So I built up more of a reputation in that genre than I necessarily wanted to be, although I don't have any problem with the uh, late-night erotica kind of thing. Um, but I love making horror films, and I love comedies. Um, the original script to Blonde and Blonder that I wrote uh, was a really fun script. Uh, the movie did not turn out that well, but uh, the screenplay was fun. And uh, trying to tackle different genres is also good, too. Always always a nice thing. On our famous car stunt, where the car changes from one car into another, um, thanks to uh, <laughs> more problems behind the scenes. Uh, but it was great doing the stunt. Um... What else? What advice can I give to other filmmakers? So, well, yeah, over the years I've been asked a lot. Uh, how did you get started? I think I told you that now. Um, how do you break into the industry? It's always different. There is no uh, set method to it. You know, um, but the idea is what you want to do is you want to keep, you keep trying. You know, the more you do, the better you get. And uh, I think it's people's, you know, fear of failure 
or that they won't be able to make it is what stops them. A lot of people start screenplays but don't finish them or start movies and take forever to finish them or a short film because they don't want to be judged or it's not turned out the way they want it to turn out. He goes, well, the fact is, you know, even with the biggest studios in Hollywood, the biggest films, most of the times people are not 100% happy with the work that's created. But if you follow through and reach the end, you're going to learn something from the experience. And it's better to do something than not to do something. And I can say this with, you know, for actors and everybody in the creative fields, all the different ways is that, you know, it's, it's finish what you start because one, it shows you're responsible. And whenever you have money on the line, whether it be $1,000 or a million dollars or $10 million or whatever, um, you know, it proves to the producer, to the money people that you will finish what you start and then they'll trust you with their money. You know, uh, making short films is good with the internet now and YouTube, all of that stuff. I, I, I say, you know, there's so many accesses and ways to do something. Anyone can do something, you know, so try to do it. Um, you know, for better or worse, because of the success of, you know, you know, Blair Witch and reality and things like that, that, uh, you can make a movie, even if you have no idea how to make a movie. I'm not saying that Blair Witch didn't know how to make a movie, but the style of like just handheld, out of focus, you know, throw it together, you know, happens a lot. Um, the old the old deal was you have a good video box, people pick up the movie no matter what it is, and then you see it and say, oh my god, what did I rent? Uh, I've heard that a lot on reviews of my films over the years. People just, you know, hate it. Um, <laughs> Nightmare Man has, you know, been the target of a lot of, you know, people that just do not get that movie because part of it is the mer is the selling you know they they think it's going to be a very scary you know horror film and it turns out to be a sort of horror comedy with a good sense of humor and they don't get the humor or they just think it's stupid and really not funny or they don't understand that it's supposed to be funny and they're looking as a horror film and they're getting something that's funny so they're laughing and they're saying well this is just ridiculous but that's always the risk you run when you're combining genres which is why hollywood hates to combine genres or say it can't be done although you know, it can be done and be very successful as well if you know what you're doing. Um, this was the first time I tried, and, uh, you know, the hazing was, uh, a, I think, a, a bigger attempt at it. Um, in some ways, a better movie. Uh, Nightmare Man uh, has elements, too. Um, Corpses is a big disaster, but it's fun for what it is uh, as long as you know it's not scary in the least bit do not rent corpses looking for a horror film it is not a horror film <laughs> it's a uh, zomedy as I said you know um, and uh, and Jaclyn Hyde nobody really knows what it is it's uh, there's got a lot of issues in Jaclyn Hyde and uh, my idea was to do looking for Mr. Goodbar cross with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde there is some humor in it absolutely on purpose but there's also a lot of other things being done and said in that movie, trying to go a little bit deeper into uh, what women do to themselves because of low self-esteem and beauty and all that stuff, which Mood Boobs actually gets into a little bit too in a very funny, lighthearted way. Um, I guess I could say that, uh, you know, I was in college, you know, taking courses like Cinema and the Psyche and... Uh, and things like that when I did when I was doing there's nothing out there and I learned that uh, people will put messages to your movies no matter what you know um, even if you intend to put to put them in or not put them in you know uh, you know the whole thing was they said that Halloween was saying that uh, you know the, the virginal girl was the only survivor so women who you know uh, should stay in the kitchen and, and not have sex and not do drugs and they're the ones who are going to survive and the ones that are more uh, risque and fooling around they're going to be killed which was not John Carver's intention, and then Friday the 13th kind of picked up on that, and it became the stereotype where, you know, horror films were telling that women should be puritanical and, uh, 
if you have an attitude or a personality or uh, at all outgoing, you're going to get killed. And uh, I don't agree with that. Um, you know, that's why purposely when I did, there's nothing out there. The couple that survives, Nick and Stacy, do have sex. You do see them naked and they still live. Um, I heard that, you know, I think on the commentary track of Scream, Kevin Williamson, and they talk about the exact same thing where Nev Campbell does have sex finally and she does survive. Um, so again, you know, uh, you know, same ideas, you know, you know, people think alike. Um, so that was, uh, you know, so, so in these movies I do, uh, you know, I try to put in different, different little messages and things in there. Uh, you know, the bit where they're undressing the bedrooms and, uh, Stacy says, you're just going to sit, lie there and watch. And Nick says, I'm just enjoying the view. And she says, yeah, you and everybody else. Well, everybody else, who is that? That's the audience. So I'm talking about the whole voyeuristic thing going on there and poking fun at the crowd as well. But, uh, trying to do it in enough good nature that, uh, you know, nobody's really offended by it all. Um, so, you know, hopefully you grow as a filmmaker and uh, you, re you retain some of your uh, childlike interest. You know, you, everyone has their favorite movies that got them into the film business in the first place that says, oh, I want to make a movie just like that. And, uh, you know, I have some good filmmaker friends out here in, Cal in California, you know, uh, uh, Dave Parker, who loved Creepshow, went on to do uh, The Hills uh, Run Red for Warner Brothers. Uh, you know, Courtney Joyner has been a big supporter and fan over the years and friend. And he started in horror and worked on, did, wrote Prison and Class of 1999 and then got into Westerns now and film noir and he's all over the place. And, you know, um, that's the thing about, you know, filmmakers is that... Uh, if you're successful in one genre, you know, Wes Craven can tell you with music from the heart that, you know, they want to see you do that one genre and not do anything else. But uh, people have different interests and it's great to jump around and go from one thing to another. And uh, I obviously love horror films and uh, I think anyone who's seen this film and, and my other horror films or if you ever see this uh, tomorrow by midnight, you'll you'll know that I, uh, you know, I watch them all. I like to see what kind of films everyone's doing and I'm very open to watching everybody's films because... You hope what goes around comes around, and if you're supportive of other people, people will be supportive of you. And I think networking is the same thing in this business, that if you talk to other filmmakers and relay information and tell people who's ripping off who, who's not being honest, you know, which distributors can you trust, which distributors can't you trust, um, that information, you know, will help you from being ripped off like uh, the countless filmmakers before you. So uh, I've always been uh, very open about speaking my mind and, and, and talking about things, naming names without trying to get into too much trouble, um, to, to help other aspiring filmmakers, you know, and hopefully they'll then help you. So, uh, you know, that's the one thing you have to keep in mind. Uh, that's why, you know, living both in New York and California, you know, I've discovered over the years, you know, that, you know the differences between the two are... Um, you know, in the attitude. Uh, so anyone planning to make that move to California, if you come from the East Coast, um, there was there was an article uh, that I read a long, long time ago that said the differences between L.A. and California. They say in uh, New York, yes, they say yes. In L.A., maybe. In New York, they say no. In L.A., they say maybe. In L.A., they say, thank you for bringing that to our attention. In New York, they say, oh, shit. And it's a directness that you can get, whereas you can develop and develop and talk and talk and talk in L.A. and nothing ever comes out of it. So the fact that anyone ever makes anything at any time out here is amazing because uh, <laughs> you'll see it just goes around and around and around. And nobody wants to take a risk on anything. 
But uh, if you just stick through it and do it yourself and just say, I'm, not, I'm sick of waiting around for everybody. I know countless actors who have done that, who have said, look, I can't find the right roles. I'm going to write scripts myself. I'm going to start producing. You know, I want to put something that I'm proud of on tape. You know, um, I mean, I think that's the thing with Tiffany Shepis and some other actors I've worked with is that, you know, you finally give someone a role that they can show what they can do. And, you know, they're so happy because they've just been playing, you know, the girl or, you know, the bikini person in the background or whatever, you know, that, uh, you don't you show your ability, you know. So it's, it's nice that everyone should have a chance, um, you know. Go back and, uh, you know, even though it's not a horror film, there's a wonderful movie that Preston Sturges did called Christmas in July. It has a wonderful, wonderful ending that talks about how everyone should at least at some point in their lives be given a chance. Even if they fail, they should be given that opportunity to prove that they could do it. And, um, you know, I was lucky enough to get that opportunity when I did this movie, There's Nothing Out There, and, uh, you know, it has led to, uh, amazingly, probably... 90% of the work I've gotten out of out of you know my career has have, has come from this movie. This movie was the uh, and still is seems to be the film that people keep going back to. So uh, you know you never know what's going to come from a, uh, an opportunity unless you do it. You know so even some terrible little project you make or some stupid little thing uh, could lead to something bigger and better. And uh, you meet people and people meet people and you know it's all part of that deal. So. Uh, my advice is just to, to finish what you start and to try to do something, just anything, you know, um, and uh, get it out there. And if you work in the, uh, the horror genre or science fiction, fantasy, uh, you'll find there's an audience and there's people willing to watch it and willing to take the time and people that are, you know, going to give you constructive criticism and, you know, they'll knock you too. But just remember for all the negative criticism that uh, everybody's a critic and uh, not everybody's a filmmaker. So, you know, you do it the best you can. Don't listen to the negative reviews. Try not to read them if you have a really strong mentality and can avoid, you know, reading your own reviews. That's great. I haven't been able to do that, so I've gotten into stupid uh, discussions online with people in the past about, you know, people think I'm the next Ed Wood, you know, um, you know, whatever it is. But the fact of the matter is, somehow I keep making movies and raising the money, and every year I seem to have another project that uh, that I've worked on, and... The filmography keeps growing, and one day, if I'm given enough time and money, and I think I'll, you know, really be able to do something really special. But in the meantime, every movie has its own thing. There's nothing out there. As now, I would guess, looking back 20 years, it's a cult movie. I think 20 years, it's can say it's officially a cult film. Never try to make a cult film. That's my other thing. If you try to make a cult film, if you try to do a Rocky Horror Picture Show, you'll never succeed. A cult film just has, sort of has to happen. You do what's honest to the movie. You do your vision of the film, and uh, and uh, and try to get it out there. Um, which is the same thing with compromise. You know, you have to compromise. That's part of the business. But stick to your guns when need be. Fight the right fights, and uh, try to remember what your vision was and what you were trying to make with this film. Even if everybody tells you you're crazy, uh, do it anyway. Because uh, you know, I found over the years. That usually the, the most the craziest thing that I do in every movie is the thing that everyone always talks about. That's the scene that people always go back to. Uh, and there's nothing out there. It was the boom swing where everyone said, don't do it. And I did it and it became famous. On the hazing, the tongue scene, the, the giant tongue scene, the homage to obviously Freddy Krueger and uh, the, the whole Night of the Demon stuff. Um, uh, that, was, uh, that was the one scene that everyone said, that's going too far, you can't do that, people won't like that, and sure enough, that's the scene everyone talks about and wants more of that. 
Um, so, uh, so I find that all the time that, you know, when everyone looks at you like you're out of your mind, that's when you know you got something special. And uh, a lot of people thought I was out of my mind doing this movie. And uh, they're probably right, but I did it anyway. We got it made, came out, got released, got released again, and is now getting released again. So we must have done something right. <laughs> um, and that's the film. Uh, again, thanks for, for watching the movie. And, uh, you know, um, if you need to know any more information, you know, I said go to the website. Uh, we'll be talking about it. There's uh, hopefully some cool special features on this disc. Uh, hopefully the, the commentary track, uh, the original commentary track and the commentary track on all the original special features are on it. A lot of people did not know from the original release that there was a commentary on all the special features, the rehearsals, the behind the scenes, the blooper reels, the trailer. I did a commentary on all of that. So if you find it, you know, look for it. If you, if you can't find it on the new one, look for it on the old one. Um, and you'll see a lot more information. But uh, hopefully that gives you an idea, a little bit of the film business, a little bit of the stuff I've learned over the years. Um, I'm still friends with uh, the assistant props. John Kim is still my best friend. I was his best man at his wedding. Gene Massey is still out here. He did the website for me. Ed Clapper is now uh, another Ed, uh, last name change. He just had a baby, a uh, friend from high school. So, uh, you know, I've worked with the same people. Uh, Robert Donovan, of course, was not in this movie. I didn't know him yet, but he's been in like 16 of my movies over the years or more. He's worked on almost every film I've done. I've done. Um, you find good people, you work with them, and you keep working with them, and, uh, you know, hopefully you get more money, more time, you can do it bigger and better. Uh, but until then, now at least you know uh, Steve Yalkowski. I've been friends with him since I've been five, uh, still friends with him. Um, but now you know what the sequel's like, uh, if we ever get it made, but uh, if we don't, at least uh, you heard the storyline here for the first time ever, uh, available. Um, and... Uh, you know, if we never get it made, then maybe we'll put the, uh, the script online somewhere. People can read it for themselves. Or raise the money and make their own version of it. Um, soundtrack was never released, so don't look for the soundtrack. Uh, however, I had, did find out that Nightmare Man, I think, is coming out this year. The soundtrack for that music, so that's cool, with some songs from the hazing as well, which people have asked about over the years. Um, and things like that. So... Next up, I have no idea. Um, a lot of things I'd like to do, but I don't know what's next in the runway in the in the, in the group. Uh, hopefully, something fun. Hopefully, something in the genre, uh, or not. But in the meantime, keep your eye out for one of the gun coming out through MTI and uh, Alien Erotica. 